Amen. So, one of the things that you will notice tonight, this is not a Lenten discipline, but you will notice that the background has turned black. That is not for ashes uh, or anything like that. It is simply at the request of a lot of our live stream people who said it would be easier for them to read on what's on the screen if the background were black. So, we're going to try that and see how it works. Uh, if you were out there in, uh, I was going to say TV land, video land, uh, please let us know if this is helping you or not. So, uh, we're going to start as usual with some music, and this is part of something that you have heard before. So, we will, we will see whether anyone knows what this is. don't know that this is the Gloria Patri, um, need to talk afterwards. Mr. Dean, I present to you Henry Francis Ashworth to be admitted chorister of this cathedral we're getting a little longer Henry Francis Ashworth, by the authority committed to me, I install you chorister of this cathedral church. May the Lord grant you the will to obey, the power to lead, and the grace to accomplish the tasks of your position. May the Lord watch over your going out and your coming in from this time forth forevermore. So, who knows what that was? 
Yes. So that is, it is an excerpt from a larger work called Blessed Be the God and Father of Our Lord Jesus Christ by Samuel Sebastian Wesley. And Samuel Sebastian Wesley was born in 1810, and he was the grandson of a certain famous hymn writer by the name of Charles Wesley. And uh, the Wesley family uh, just continued to do lots of amazing things. But I think that is one of the most beautiful pieces of music, of setting scripture to music ever. But the text is so important and appropriate for tonight because they're just repeating over and over and over, love one another from a pure heart fervently. And I just wanna put that out there because all the rest of what we're gonna to hear tonight is not that. <laughs> it will be the opposite of that. So uh, let's begin by saying our verse together. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. So again, welcome, we are glad you are here. Uh, if this is your first time, uh, I just wanna tell you that there are a couple of ways to engage with this class. You can be on the beach, which means you show up, at least sometimes. Uh, you don't necessarily do anything. You might fall asleep from time to time. Uh, that is perfectly fine. It's what you might call the osmosis method. Uh, you're not deeply invested, but you might get a little bit out of it. And if that's all you wanna do, we are delighted to have you. Or you can snorkel, which means on the parts that you find interesting, you can go deep. Uh, there are no handouts tonight, so if you're snorkeling, or scuba diving, you can pretend that you're a scuba diver or a snorkeler because there isn't anything to go deep into. Uh, but next week, watch out, because if I go a week without handouts, there's no telling what may be waiting for you. Uh, but scuba diving means that you read everything, you read all the information in the email, you look at the handouts, you listen to the music, you contemplate all the things that we're talking about. Whichever of those levels you want to be at, we're delighted to have you. Uh, what I would encourage you to do if you are um, here in person in your news, please sign the little sheet over there with your email address, or if you're online or on the podcast, please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and just write a little email asking to be added to our email list uh, because that comes every week and has a lot of information that will help you uh, to go over the things that we've talked about in the class. And again, just as you read this book, I know it's really tempting to read ahead. Please try not to do that. Um, read a chapter at a time, read it out loud, go back and reread it. Uh, there is much to chew on in this book. So, 
Uh, chapter 9, uh, you might have thought we were going to spend the rest of the year in chapter 9, uh, which would have been just fine with me. Uh, but as we've been trying to move along, I think uh, however many weeks, three or four that we spent on that uh, was probably enough. But that chapter is the hinge of the entire book. And in that chapter, you'll remember Lewis encounters George MacDonald, um, the great writer and Scottish cleric. And MacDonald explains a lot of things to him about these bright spirits and about the people that are down in hell and how all of that works. And then at the end of the chapter, there are all of these marvelous vignettes that we talked about two weeks ago uh, where we have everything from the, um, the ghost known as the vamp, uh, the one who is uh, trying to put, as Lewis said, lipstick on a corpse and trying to seduce the bright spirits. We've got that going on. We've got the, the artist that thinks that there should be a welcoming committee for him um, to take him straight to meet Claude Monet when he arrives into heaven, and he's sorely disappointed and everything in between. But there were a bunch of themes in chapter 9, and I'm just going to run through these really quickly. I would commend to you to go back to the email um, and just think about some of these. So the first one is God's time is not our time, and it's beyond our ability to comprehend it. The second one is that heaven is solid and real. We tend to think of heaven as being sort of ethereal and pink clouds and little angels and harps, and that is not it at all. Heaven is more real and more solid than anything that we experience in our earthly reality. Lewis is not interested in this book in teaching about the timing and mechanics of how salvation and atonement works, but rather in the nature and importance of choice. And part of what he's trying to get at is uh, much what we heard, those of you that were in church about the... Uh, the homily tonight about habits and how if you keep choosing the same thing against God over and over again, that is going to drive you farther and farther from Christ. The fourth thing, we cannot hold on to anything, anything of this world if we hope to be saved. Fifthly, studying about or working for Christ is not the same as knowing him. And this was interesting because McDonald says to Lewis, this is something you may need to watch out for. So Lewis is writing a warning to himself that as he writes all of these books about God and spiritual experience, to not substitute that writing and research for an actual living relationship with Jesus. Sixth, God does not force salvation upon those who do not wish to follow him. Seventh, Grumbling and complaining are spiritually dangerous habits that when practiced continually become an addiction that we can no longer control, but which controls us instead. And we talked about how part of the reason that this is such an issue is that Satan loves for Christians to grumble and complain all the time. Because if we're the only people who know the truth and joy of salvation, and we decide we're going to be miserable and make everyone around. Eighth, appreciation of beauty is enhanced by the company of a wiser companion. 
One of the interesting things about the great divorce is there's a whole subtext through this whole book on the theology of beauty and how amazingly important beauty is and the beauty that God has made in creation and that we need to be trained in order to see that and to appreciate it. Um, ninth, obsession with sexual seduction can become an addiction to you to the desirability of heaven. And we're saying this is sort of like those things that you see on uh, needle-pointed pillows in some people's houses. If you don't have anything nice to say, come sit next to me. Or, um, you know, heaven is full of boring people and hell is where the company's good. Um, those kinds of things. But that idea that you think somehow hell is going to be fun and more intellectually stimulating <laughs> is uh, not correct. Eleventh, uh, seeing yourself as a victim and embracing bitterness and hatred leads to contempt for goodness and joy. And of course, we are seeing this all over our culture right now. So Lewis is way ahead of his time writing about this in the 1940s. And then the last part, the true purpose of art and the artist is to give glimpses of the glory and beauty of heaven because of his love for them, not because of his love of the craft or of fame. So as you can tell, there's a lot there, and we've unpacked most of that in class, but I would commend to you um, to go back and look at the email uh, to help you get a hold of all of that. So chapter 10. Chapter 10, Lewis and George MacDonald um, encounter this other ghostly woman who is on a tear of a conversation when they encounter her. And it becomes apparent as you read the chapter that this is a woman on a mission. She is on a mission, and she is not going to let anyone or anything stand in her way. And it becomes apparent that she, uh, during her earthly life, was married to a man named Robert. And much to her surprise and chagrin, when they die, she, the one who managed everything, is in hell. And Robert, the loser, is in heaven. And she is just disgusted that this, how did this happen? They must have gotten the forms in the wrong pile or something. And then she discovers to make it even worse that Robert's sister, Hilda, is in heaven too. And she is, she is just undone by this. And so she is going to give the people in heaven a piece of her mind in this chapter. And she is going to also let them know not only about the mistake that they made, but about what a loser Robert is and was throughout their marriage. And so there are several things that you're going to see that Lewis is getting at here, but I want to just say a couple of things on the front end before we jump into this. First, this is not a chapter that is trying to get at that somehow because she's the wife, she's the one that's got the problem. This could just as easily be written where it's the other way around. So the point is not about the sex of either of the people here. It is about the approach 
to marriage. And one of the things that you will see here is that this woman who is undone about what has happened, she was very much of the opinion that her jealousy, what she wants to tell everyone to straighten them out up there. That's exactly right. So the first thing is that she appears and uh, she is very distressed that the bright spirit that has come to meet her is Hilda, the loser sister of her loser husband. And so she's like, well, if you're the one, I'm not even going to stay. And she says, that is quite, quite out of the question, said the female ghost to one of the bright women. I should not dream of staying if I'm expected to meet Robert. I am ready to forgive him, of course, but anything more is quite impossible. How he comes to be here, but that is your affair. But if you've forgiven him, said the other, surely. I forgive him as a Christian, said the ghost, but there are some things one can never forget. You haven't the faintest conception of what I went through with your dear Robert. The ingratitude. It was I who made a man of him, sacrificed my whole life to him. And what was my reward? Absolute, utter selfishness. Well, obviously there's something going on there that um, she thinks is forgiveness, but clearly is not. Then there's a whole subtext about ambition and the purpose of life. And she begins to tell us about all the things that she did for dear Robert. Robert was pottering along on about 600 pounds a year when I married him. And mark my words, Hilda, he'd have been in that position to the day of his death if it hadn't been for me. It was I who had to drive him every step of the way. He hadn't a spark of ambition. It was like trying to lift a sack of coal I had to positively nag him to take on that extra work in the other department, though it really was the beginning of everything for him, the laziness of men. He said, if you please, he couldn't work more than 13 hours a day, as if I weren't working far longer, for my day's work wasn't over when his was. And there's this whole idea that getting ahead the whole purpose of life is to get that big job and to get that big salary because when you get that, then you will matter and people will think you're important and your life will be wonderful. Well, let's see how that worked out. And we'll notice here that the goals of marriage and the nature of love are not in accord with that song we heard at the beginning. If Robert had had his way, He'd have just sat in an armchair and sulked when dinner was over. It was I who had to draw him out of himself and brighten him up and make conversation. He didn't even listen. Can't imagine why. <laughs> he seemed to have forgotten that I was a lady, even if I had married him. And all the time, I was working my fingers to the bone for him and without the slightest appreciation. 
I used to spend simply hours arranging flowers to make that pokey little house nice. And instead of thanking me, what do you think he said? Said he wished I wouldn't fill up the writing desk with them when he wanted to use it. And there was a perfectly frightful fuss one evening because I'd spilled one of the vases over some papers of his. It was all nonsense, really, because they weren't anything to do with his work. He had some silly idea of writing a book in those days, as if he could. I cured him of that in the end. Well, this just sounds like marital bliss and joy, doesn't it? And what you will notice there is that we can infer that Robert had a side of himself that he wanted to express through writing a book and that he had his writing desk that was his place for being able to do that. And she came and who knows how far the manuscript was along and dumped water over the entire thing and ruined it. But rather than having any sympathy or apologizing or anything else, she said, well, he, he's just wrong. Why should he be upset? Because if the papers didn't have something to do with his job and getting ahead, they were worthless. And what sort of idiot like Robert could think that he could write a book anyway? And it's my job to cure him, cure him of those silly self-delusions. Just makes you want to be married to her, doesn't it? <laughs> then, as if that's not bad enough, not only does she meddle with him, but she decides that she's going to take on his friends. And so there's a whole subtext here about the nature and purpose of friendship. The other thing that's interesting when you read this chapter, poor Hilda. I mean, Hilda seems like she's pretty nice, reasonable person. She can't get a word in Edgewater by the end of the first year. She's very efficient, I'll give her that. Well, I got him into the new house at last. Yes, I know, it was a little more than we could really afford at that moment, but all sorts of things were opening out before him. And of course, I began to entertain properly. No more of his sorts of friends, thank you. I was doing it all for his sake. Every useful friend he ever made was due to me. So, according to this woman, you don't want to have friends because you enjoy them or because you have long-standing relationships with them or because you share fellowship with them. No, no your time, and it is to be gotten rid of and lopped off. Sounds like lots of fun. <laughs> but then, this poor woman, it's so sad, because she's worked so hard to do all these things to straighten him out, and he doesn't appreciate her. And the longer they go on in their marriage, the more morose and sulky he gets, and it just sets her teeth on edge. Robert just set himself to get old and silent and grumpy, just sank into himself. He could have looked years younger if he'd taken the trouble. He needn't have walked with a stoop. I'm sure I warned him about that often enough. 
because of course if you're walking with the stoop about that often enough, he was the most miserable host. Whenever we gave a party, I'm sure Robert was really helping give the party. I'm sure he was very interested in the party with her friends. Whenever we gave a party, everything rested on my shoulders. Robert was simply a wet blanket. He hadn't always been like that. There had been a time when he took an interest in all sorts of things and had been quite ready to make friends. What on earth is coming over you, I used to say. But now he just didn't answer at all. He would sit staring at me with his great big eyes. And I know it now, just hating me. That was my reward. After all I'd done, sheer, wicked, senseless hatred at the very moment when he was a richer man than he'd ever dreamed of being. Well, it must all be all right because now he's rich. I mean, that's what it's all about, isn't it? And yet you see how this woman is so blinded that she's literally destroyed this man through her words and her actions day after day after day, and she can look at him and say, what on earth is coming over you? Can you imagine if he had told her the truth? Then, duty versus love. Duty is a much bigger word in England than it is in this country. But there is a sense of duty and obligation of doing the right thing um, that is sort of peculiarly British. And so now she's going to lean into that to let us know how virtuous she was in the face of all of this rebellion on the part of her husband. I did my duty to the very end. I forced him to take exercise. That was really my chief reason for keeping a great dame. I kept on giving parties. I took him for the most wonderful holidays. Wouldn't you have liked to be on the fly on the wall? <laughs> wonderful holidays. Wonder who they were wonderful for. Probably endless spa treatments while he sat alone in a hotel room. Even when things became desperate, I encouraged him to take up his writing again. It couldn't do any harm by then. How could I help it if he did have a nervous breakdown in the end? My conscience is clear. I've done my duty by him. Well, thinking about how she defined her duty, if her duty was to cause him to have a nervous breakdown, she's done a fabulous job. Uh, but it is interesting, look how self-deluded she is. She absolutely believes that she is righteous and that she has done everything right and she cannot understand why Robert is in heaven and this Hilda is up there too and she's down in hell and she wants to get out and take over and straighten things out. She's not going to let anything stand beat up that there's this beautiful freedom and that there's love and beauty and joy and life bursting out of things. And she can't stand that 
because she wants to be able to control everything and she is not in charge. So when Helda starts to resist a little bit, which was very brave of her, I think, uh, the woman turns to Helda and says, no, give him to me, do you hear? Don't consult him, just give him to me. I'm his wife, aren't I? I was only beginning. There's lots, lots, lots of things I still want to do with him. No, listen, Hilda, please, please, I'm so miserable. I must have someone to, to do things to. It's simply frightful down there. No one minds about me at all. I can't alter them. It's dreadful to see them all sitting around and to not be able to do anything with them. Give him back to me. Why should he have everything his own way? It's no good for him. It isn't right. It's not fair. I want Robert. What right have you to keep him from me? I hate you. How can I pay him out if you won't let me have him? The ghost, which had towered up like a dying candle flame, snapped suddenly. A sour, dry smell lingered in the air for a moment, and then there was no ghost to be seen. She is so consumed with hatred and this need to control that it literally consumes her, and she is eaten up by it and vanishes presumably back down to hell. Now, as we read this, it's so easy to look at it and say, oh, she's terrible. Did you see how terrible she was? I would never do that. Well, let's just say there are probably some things all of us could learn from this chapter. So, looking at some of the themes in here. First, the nature and content of true forgiveness. I forgive him as a Christian, said the ghost, but there are some things one can never forget. You haven't the faintest conception of what I went through with your dear Robert. The ingratitude, it was I who made a man of him, sacrificed my whole life to him. And what was my reward? Absolute, utter selfishness. So who was it that actually made Robert a man? That might have been God who created Robert, it might be God who's in charge of Robert and not this woman. And this whole idea of I forgive him as a Christian, and clearly what she means by that is I know it's my duty as a Christian to forgive him, and so I'm going to say the words and say that I have forgiven him but I am not about to actually do it because what he did to me was unforgivable. And that's just where she is. And so she's happy to go through the outward motions to be polite, but what she is harboring in her heart is deep resentment. And this reminds me so much of, it's sort of a different thing, but there is a really funny video that I will put in the email um, that is called Mrs. Beamish. And Mrs. Beamish um, is a video that is a song done by an English comedian about a woman who is probably a little bit like the woman in this chapter, who is confronted at her Church of England church by a new vicar 
who says, we are going to start passing the peace. And she says, over my dead body, are we going to do that? And it, it goes through just the whole litany of all of the reasons that she's not going to do this because it's awful. And maybe she'll say the words, uh, but she is not interested. And that's very much what we see here. Her heart is not remotely interested in forgiveness. And the irony is that she says, I forgive him as a Christian. And of course, Christian forgiveness, what Jesus teaches us about forgiveness is one of the most radical, countercultural things that there is. And it is something we desperately need to get back in touch with in this cultural moment. Because over and over and over again, we hear voices in our culture saying, some things you cannot forgive. This can never be forgiven. You must stand on your rights. And the one example of a really beautiful and powerful pushback against that was after the Mother Emanuel tragedy. And family after family after family who had been wronged by this racist young man that went into a Bible study and shot those people, they came forward, and if anyone had the right to not forgive, it would have been them. But they came forward one after another after another, saying, we forgive you. And some of them said, we forgive you, we pray for you, you need to know Jesus. And that is exactly what ought to be happening and what we ought to be practicing. And remember, Jesus tells that parable of the unmerciful servant, uh, the one who owes hundreds of millions of dollars to his master, and he pleads with the master, and the master forgives him, which is just shocking, unbelievable that the master would do that because he had every reason not to. But the master forgives him and sets him free, and then he goes out, and someone that owes him about $20, uh, he beats up, and the others are horrified when they see this, and they haul him back to the master who says, how could you do this after all I have forgiven you? And so he sends him uh, essentially to the equivalent of hell. And right after that, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. That is strong. And then in Ephesians, we see, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Because, of course, the whole point of that parable is that we are like that first servant. We have been forgiven all of our sin, which is like that unpayable debt of hundreds of millions of dollars. And we have been forgiven that, and yet we hold on to petty grudges and things where we don't want to forgive people. Secondly, ambition and the purpose of life. Robert was pottering along on about 600 a year when I married him. And mark my words, held a been in that position to the day of his death if it hadn't been for me. It was I who had to drive him every step of the way. He said, if you please, he couldn't work more than 13 hours a day. It never occurs to her that he might have been perfectly happy on 600 a year, that that might have been the life that he wanted, uh, that that might have been the life that God had laid out for him. But instead, 
she is determined that he is going to make a lot of money and that it is up to her to push him to do that. And if he has to work 13 hours a day, seven days a week in order to do it, so be it, because that is the purpose of life, to be ambitious and to get ahead. And again, this is so much where our culture is right now. And people, particularly after COVID, the boundaries that used to exist between work and home are largely gone. And many, many, many employers, particularly of people who are under the age of 35, these employers expect you to be available 24-7 on email or on calls, and that's just the way it is. And that is so contrary um, to the vision of life and purpose that's described in the scripture. As the Westminster Confession says, The purpose of life, the purpose of man, is to know God and to enjoy him forever. That doesn't have much to do with being in front of a screen working 13 hours a day, seven days a week. And then when we listen to St. Paul, Philippians is a great chapter to read about this, but listen to what Paul says. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need And I know what it is in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. There's not a lot of contentment in our culture today. Everyone seems to be discontent and put upon and to feel victimized in some way. And Paul, of all people, could have said he was a victim. All sorts of terribly unjust things happened to Paul. And yet, he chooses to be content. He says he has learned the secret of being content in each and every situation. And that is where we need to pay attention, because he's saying his contentment does not depend on his circumstances. And we live in a world and a culture that says your circumstances determine whether you can be content or not. But the kingdom of God says, no, our contentment is based in who we know. It is based in knowing Jesus Christ and being invested in his kingdom. And then in 1 Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. So thirdly, the goals of marriage and the nature of love. I used to spend simply hours arranging flowers to make that pokey little house nice. And instead of thanking me, what do you think he said? Said he wished I wouldn't fill up the writing desk with him when he wanted to use it. And there was a perfectly frightful fuss one evening because I'd spilled one of the vases over some papers of his. It was all nonsense, really, because they weren't anything to do with his work. He had some silly idea of writing a book in those days, as if he could. I cured him of that in the end. Well, that is not what the goal of marriage is about, to cure your spouse of things. Um, The goal of marriage, as we said before, is to help the person that you're married to become more like Christ. And this whole idea of having to make everything look just so or else that It's that sort of idea of all the emphasis on externals. So this is like 
when Jesus talks about the Pharisees and he says they are whitewashed tombs, they are looking pretty good on the outside, but what's inside is empty and, as Jesus said, full of dead men's bones. This is so far away from the nature of love that we see modeled in Jesus. And listen to what scripture says. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then Titus, encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And then from 1 Peter, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And so this whole idea of being sensible and pure and loving and encouraging and making it so it's better that the husband is not alone. Poor Robert would have been a lot better off if he'd been alone than being with this particular woman. And then, of course, what Paul says um, for husbands in all of this, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's supposed to be this mutual submission, mutual sacrifice, and mutual seeking after Jesus And there's just none of that that you see in this woman. And then the nature and purpose of friendship. I knew from the first that those him no good. I couldn't help laughing at them sometimes. Robert was uncomfortable while the treatment was going on. The treatment? But it was all for his own good in the end. None of that set of friends were any longer his friends by the end of the first year. I began to entertain properly, i.e. useful friends. No more of his sort of friends, thank you. I was doing it all for his sake. Every useful friend he ever had made was due to me. Well, Lewis writes a lot about friendship, and there's a beautiful section in his book, The Four Loves About Friendship, about how friendship is one of the most important loves, and we in the modern world have crowded it out at what Lewis calls clubability, which is just sort of hanging out with people. So if you are in table, then you're friends because you're in the same space. But you're not communicating with each other. And Lewis instead says that real friendship happens at the moment when two people are looking at something or talking about something, and one looks at the other and says, what you two I thought I was the only one. And then he says, true friends see the same truth. So it's when you are mutually enthusiastic and drawn to the same thing, and this energy comes bubbling out of that. Um, And of course, Christian friendship, that thing that you're both seeing is Jesus. And this whole idea of friends as a way to uh, improve your career status, although there's a lot of that in our culture today, Um, That is not what true friendship is. And scripture is full of beautiful text about friendship. Sometime, if you get bored, I would encourage you to, if you're an old school person, get out of concordance and look everywhere in scripture that talks about friends. Uh, Or if you want to do the 
more uh, modern way, just Google scriptures on friendship and just read what's there because it's profound. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And we're getting ready to hear that whole text on Maundy Thursday during Holy Week because that is what Jesus says at the Last Supper when he washes his disciples' feet and then he goes on to die on the cross to lay down his life for his friends. And notice he says, love each other as I have loved you. That is the standard. And then, do nothing, nothing, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Robert's wife clearly never read that verse. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, ooh, humility, value others above yourselves. And that, in a narcissistic culture, that is a radical call and a radical call to those of us who are Christians to obedience in that area. And then this whole idea of the high cost of high control. What on earth is coming over you, I used to say, but now he just didn't answer at all. He would sit there staring at me with his great big eyes, and I know it now, just hating me. That was my reward. After all I'd done, sheer, wicked, senseless hatred, at the very moment when he was a richer man than he'd ever dreamed of being. Not exactly what the scriptures say. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. And then that great verse from Proverbs, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. And just imagine this woman has been speaking death throughout this relationship over and over again, never speaking life. And then duty versus love. Even when things became desperate, I encouraged him to take up his writing again. Couldn't do any harm by then. How could I help it if he did have a nervous breakdown in the end? My conscience is clear. I've done my duty by him. Again, here's what we heard when we started class. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Self-sacrifice, loving one another fervently. And then this really tricky one of selfishness that's masquerading as self-sacrifice. I'll make them a fair offer, Hilda. I will not meet him if it means just meeting him and no more. But if I'm given a free hand, I'll take charge of him again. I'll take up my burden once more. 
but I must have a free hand. With all the time one would have here, I believe I could make something of him somewhere quite to ourselves. Wouldn't that be a good plan? He's not fit to be on his own. Put me in charge of him. He wants firm handling. Well, again, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Well, I think we've just seen disorder and every evil practice in a marriage. And then the freedom of heaven and the consuming fire of hatred and self-obsession. No, give him to me, do you hear? Don't consult him. Just give him to me. I'm his wife, aren't I? I was only beginning. There's lots, lots, lots of things I still want to do with him. No, listen, Hilda, please, please, I'm so miserable. I must have someone to, to do things to. It's simply frightful down there. No one minds about me at all. I can't alter them. It's dreadful to see them all sitting about and not be able to do anything with them. Give him back to me. Why should he have everything his own way? It's no good for him. It isn't right. It's not fair. I want Robert. What right have you to keep him from me? I hate you. How can I pay him out if you won't let me have him? Whoa. Well, the first thing is she's got a little theological problem because scripture is quite clear. Jesus said at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. And Robert is probably saying, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. And then from 1 John, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love whom he has not seen. See to it then that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, by it many become defiled. And then that beautiful section from Romans 8. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the glorious liberty of the sons of God. That is what awaits in heaven. And as we close, I want us to just look at a little poem that C.S. Lewis wrote that I think just sums up beautifully this chapter. An epitaph. Erected by her sorrowing brothers in memory of Martha Clay. Here lies one who lived for others. Now she has peace, and so have they. <laughs> there is a deep truth in that poem. And then again from that wonderful introduction to this book. I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find that what he abandoned, even in plucking out his right eye, has not been lost, that the kernel of what he was really seeking, even in his most depraved wishes, will be there beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high countries.